Hello, my name's John Busby. I play in a band called Halfway. We're from Brisbane. We've made six long playing records since the year 2000. Our first was in 2004. And basically I'm just using the COVID-19 downtime to do two things. One, just to mark the band's 20th anniversary, and two, to go through our albums and how and why we made them. Also along the way, we'll talk to some people who helped us out. So at this point, we're up to LP5, the Golden Halfway Record. And in this episode, I'm going to talk to Mark Namas, the guy who produced, recorded and mixed the record for us. But before I do that, I'm just going to outline briefly a song from the record called Three In and Nothing But The Stars. I touched on it briefly in the last episode. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a park drinking song and I do have some form in this area. But it's a song I'm very fond of. It's one of only a couple of pop songs on this record and I think the band are great on it. I think we usually do somber and sadness quite well. I guess we're a little typecast in that regard. But I really think the band captured this perfectly. It's so joyous and wholehearted. I think it really has the essence of being three drinks in and underneath the stars. That feeling of endless possibilities. That anything could happen. And Noel Fitzpatrick's pedal steel line. It's just killer. I can remember the first time I heard it in the rehearsal room. What a line. It made the song. And again, there was no conversation about it. No, I was thinking something like this or whatever. It was just there. Just appeared all of a sudden in the rehearsal room. And when you combine it with the Will Steed lick in the intro, it's magic. I just love listening to it. And as I'm listening to all this, as a bonus, I get to name drop my home suburb in Rockhampton, Wandle. And also the great North Brisbane suburb of Aspley, from Wandle's Waiting Arms to Aspley Hypermarket. Two great places. In a way, I think the song covers a lot of the themes on the record. In the same way the night sky does, but it's the other side of the coin. A bit like two people looking at the same sky, but their situations are different, and they get a different result. So here it is, from our 2016 album, The Golden Halfway Record, Three In and Nothing But The Stars. Waiting on 
crisply hypermarket We set ourselves some goals We'd always reach defeat Okay, so as I mentioned in a previous episode, we went to the States to make this record, and we did it with an engineer called Mark Nevers, at his studio, Beach House, which was at the time based in Nashville. He's since moved back to a place called Pawleys Island, which is near his home in South Carolina, near Myrtle Beach. He's building a new studio there at the moment. He's a great engineer, and he's been making great records for over 30 years. By his own admission, he's quite an aloof character, and he doesn't do a lot of interviews. So it was nice of him to do this one. He's been a key player in all of our projects since 2015. He recorded, mixed and produced the Golden Halfway record. And he also mixed our most recent record, Rain Lover, from 2018. He also played guitar on both of those records. Space guitar, he calls it. Which is his version of a kind of soundscape or ambient guitar style. And he's used it over the years to great effect on quite a few of the Lamb Chop albums and a lot of the people he's produced and recorded over the years. I guess you'd say it adds a subtle flavour or texture which just sits in the background of the record. And it's really quite idiosyncratic and beautiful. Now the first time we encountered Mark's work was when we came across a record called Nixon by Lamb Chop. Mark had recorded it and played guitar on it. He was a touring member of the band. And it came out in 2000, about the same time as we started Halfway. It had a big impact on the band. For a couple of reasons, I guess. One, they were a big lineup. They were about a 10-piece, I think, and sometimes more. And the record just sounded so lush. There were strings, it was cinematic, it was spectacular. Beautiful songs as well. Quite subtle in the way they were constructed. In some ways, more like a soul band than a country band. For us, it was just one of those records that came out at the right time. We just started and we were looking around for things to push us forward. And I mentioned in a previous podcast, Steve Earle's Transcendental Blues and the Flaming Lips Soft Bulletin, which, funnily enough, Mark mentions in this interview. But long story short, this was one of those records. It just hit the band hard and we returned to it again and again over the years. Yeah, it was great. And their whole back catalogue's fantastic. Two other highlights are Damaged and Mr. M. Beautiful records. And beyond Lamb Chop, Mark has recorded some incredible bands over the years. 
In a way, his work has been a document of an underground Nashville bubbling below the surface. Recording people like Bonnie Prince Billy, The Silver Jews, Calexico, all the way through to stone-cold country legends like Charlie Leuven and George Jones. Mark Nevers is really the link through all of that. Actually, George Jones won a Grammy in 1999 for Best Male Country Vocal for a song he recorded with Mark called Choices. If you haven't heard it, have a listen. It's incredible. We were playing it non-stop when we were in Nashville. And before I get to my chat with Mark, I just wanted to mention for context that during the interview, we talk about David Berman and the Silver Jews. Over the years, Mark recorded quite a few of their albums. They did some fantastic work together. David Berman was a poet and one of the greatest lyricists to ever bother with rock and roll. And sadly, in 2019, he passed away. It was a huge loss, and he's missed. Okay, so let's get to the interview. He's a legendary producer and key figure in the Nashville underground. Member of Lamb Chop and Grammy award-winning engineer, our friend, Mark Nevers. How's it going, man? Good? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm good. You all get those fires out finally? Yeah, we got the fires put out and then we're in COVID lockdown or whatever. Weird year, but we're all okay. Yeah. How's everybody else doing? John and the rest of the boys. Yeah, Willsteed's good. The rest of the boys are all going well. So you headed north up to the, uh, the Crocs and the Box Jellies? That's it, mate, yeah. Uh, man's man's plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually looking at the harbour now. Beautiful place. All that water, no one in it. They're on it and near it, but not in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, all that water, you don't fucking in it. <laughs> yeah, you can look at it, but you did not go in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're in a frontier land. It is a bit. Well, you are as little too, huh? Pauly's Island in the south there. That looks beautiful. No, it is. It is, and it's... uh. They call it the low country because it's always flooding. It's kind of something you got to deal with. Yeah, okay. But uh, luckily, I'm I, I'm high enough to where we went through three floods of the millennium and then hadn't come up yet, so wow, okay. I feel safe. And the weather is pretty brutal, is it? Like a lot of storms and things? Well, you know, it hasn't years. Like when I lived here in the 70s, there wasn't any storms. You know, yeah. it's just like hurricanes work in 30-year cycles. Ah, okay. You get into the 30-year cycle where they're fucking bad, and it's like every fucking other year you're, like, worried. You know? Yeah, right. And we're kind of in that, you know, because there's some really bad hurricanes here in the 80s, late 80s, and now it's been 30 years, so it's like they're coming back. So yeah, how do you, like, hang with the band and shit? You're so far away. And- yeah, I've just been flying a lot, mate, every few weeks. We've got a room in Brisbane, so try and get there as often as I can, you know. Hard with COVID, though. Yeah. What got you into recording in the first place? How'd you get into becoming an engineer? Well, actually, it's because my dad was in Vietnam, and uh, there wasn't uh, telephones back then very often where they could communicate, so we... We did it with reel-to-reel recorders, like the little small ones back yeah. in the 60s. And I was always fascinated when I heard it back how differently my, my mom would play it back before we sent it to my dad. And I was always fascinated how different it sounded. My voice sounded 
to me being recorded. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was just something took from there. It's like this is, this is weird. Why does my voice sound like it does when I talk? Yeah. Uh, so I started an early fascination. You know, to that point probably. Yeah. Wow. That's cool, man. Yeah, the tape. But um, you know, as far as musically and shit, you know, I got into punk rock and stuff here in Myrtle Beach, and there was, you know. You had to play fucking, uh, if you wanted to be a musician here, you had to play Jimmy Buffett and shit. I mean, you were not going to be an original band here. So yeah. that's why I left to Nashville to record and shit. Yeah, right. And you did like an apprenticeship in a commercial studio in Nashville, yeah? Yeah, back then, you know, there was a there was a studio system you had to go through, you know. Yeah. It, it was an apprenticeship and all that stuff. That's all gone nowadays, but... And that's all gone now, has it? They don't do that stuff anymore? Uh, they they do, but it's not like it used to be, you know? Right, yeah. Like, first of all, all the artists realized they were just blowing their fucking money in studios and they all built their own studios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And so when did you go to Nashville? Was that in the 80s? Yeah, it was mid-80s. Yeah, so I basically spent 30 years there. And what spurred you on to get your own studio? Um, because it's just more convenient, you know, so I, I didn't like the way the studios felt. They're like hospitals mixed with military shit. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, <clears throat> I realized it was like, well, fucking recording at my house with an eight track, getting stoned, getting drunk. is much uh, better than like going to a studio where you get in trouble for having a beer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like Cowboy Jack said, the worst place you can make a record is in a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> And how'd you get to hook up with Lamb Chop? Was that just something you already you already knew those guys, or you already knew Kurt? Or well, they'd already done a couple records, and I knew Kurt from the local bar scene and stuff. Yeah. But I did have access to those studios back then to like upgrade their sound. That's basically where it started. Ah, uh, yeah. Make it a bit more high. Before home recording, got, you know, home recording free up. Up to par nowadays. Back then it wasn't. It all sounded like any rock or sounded like it's all recorded on a cassette four track. Yeah, totally. A lot of indie rock was still pretty lo-fi sounding back then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And then it was pretty funny because we were kind of like heretics for dragging it out of that. <laughs> the Flaming Lips put out a record that was sonically great too. The uh, uh, what the hell is it called? Soft Parade. Same Soft time we did Nixon. Yeah. yeah. So it. it those two records, I think, changed indie rock a lot as far as sonic-wise. Oh, yeah. Nixon and Soft Bulletin are amazing-sounding records. We loved them. Orchestration and full cinematic-sounding things. It's hard to go back. Yeah, know, that's like, it, yeah. You've set a standard everyone has to stick to kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's the once you make a big record and then you're like, you go back to being a crumpled cassette sound, it's kind of like, oh, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Although that's like... A, I got an A track like I started with, and a console that works with it. So I'm trying to like refine the old style. Oh really? So yeah. you're doing like a combination it's of cool. a more lo-fi thing and hi-fi stuff? Is that the idea? Yeah, pretty much. You know, because that old lo-fi stuff, those old tape machines, they do have a sound. Yeah. It's just that they're always fucked up and shit and noisy. Yeah, yeah. But I've, I've been trying to work around it, trying to make it to where it sounds good, but still has that sound. Yeah, it still has the character. Yeah, the character. Because, like, you know, a 24-track tape machine really doesn't sound like anything. Because yeah. it sounds good. But, like, the, the old 8-track half-inch is 
they have a different sound. It's like they immediately make you uh, sound like you're from a different era. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so just trying to get that sound uh, more hi-fi is basically what I'm saying. Totally. Yeah, I get it. So was it through recording Lamb Chop that you got the connection to Colexico and Bonnie Prince Billy and all that great indie rock stuff? Well, the big I think the biggest thing that changed it for me, because I didn't even know who the Silver Jews were, but when oh, I did that Sil- first yeah. Silver Jews record, yeah, yeah, it was really the Silver Jews. I mean, Lamb Chop led me to the Silver Jews, but the Silver Jews is what really kind of changed everything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, that's what brought me Bonnie, uh, Will Oldham. Yeah, and the reason why I mean, he liked the record, but he knew that David was very eccentric and hard to work with. Yeah, and so was Will. And so Will was kind of like, "Well, fuck! If this guy can handle David, he'd be able. To, she should be able to work with me." <laughs> <laughs> it was a temperament thing. Yeah, and it was a funny one. I, David said, "Okay, this guy named Will Oldham. He, he used to be an actor. He's coming over. He wants to do a record." And I was like, oh, "Okay, I didn't know anything about him." And I thought it was going to be Jack Black. <laughs> <laughs> so when I saw him at my door, I was like, wait a minute, you're not that guy that's a singer or actor? Yeah. That's how, that's how fucking aloof I was. <laughs> that's good. And yeah, the Silver Jews. Those records you made with them are great. I know, yeah. I just hate what David did and how it all ended up. Fucking nightmare scenario there. Yeah, mate. Yeah, it's terrible. Very sad. His last record was good, Purple Mountains. That was beautiful. Oh yeah, the uh, his last record was great. He shouldn't just he should have never toured. Yeah, and that's what that's what really that's what really brought him down. Yeah, I guess it would have been a tough thing to go out and play, especially in the states where it's such a big grind. Well, the record was just so personal and dark. Yeah. You know, it's like you know we live this shit every fucking night. You know, yeah, so yeah. it's like if. In retrospect, it'd be like, now, David, don't tour this record. And then yeah. Maybe then later on you can tour. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, it really did fuck them up. So, so you're, you guys are 20 years old now, huh? Yeah, we're 20. How about that? 20's a good year. <laughs> yeah, that's a good year. <laughs> <laughs> Those were some of the best years of my life. You know? <laughs> yeah, 20 is pretty good. But yeah, we're still pushing along. And yeah, Nashville, we look back on the beach house days pretty fondly. I mean, we're only there for a week or so, but we had a good time. Yeah, no, that was great for me too, man, having all you guys around. Yeah. All the different personalities, because there's not, there's not, uh, I forgot the bass player's name Benny and the drummer's name but they El, were, yeah Elwin's a drummer they were the, yeah 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 that's it they were like the most similar yeah. and uh yeah they're both pretty easy going uh, you know and just uh attitudes and everything <laughs> and everybody else is completely fucking different <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a mixed bag from there <laughs> and, uh, and uh the guitar player i'm sorry i, I haven't thought about y'all in a little bit oh, so chris uh, there's me and chris that play guitar. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and so he's a wild card you know <laughs> yeah. and he you kind of he's kind of like the old barge captains is like trying to keep all these fuckers from falling overboard you know? <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> 
I remember that first day we came to the studio just for a walkthrough, and you were setting the drums up. Yeah, we weren't in great shape. Oh, yeah. We had one guy out in the back grass asleep, and another in the bathroom. Yeah. It was chaos. Because we just had that 20-hour flight or whatever. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we went straight out on the strip. I guess you get that a bit, but, uh, you know, we, we were a mess. But we got through it. Yeah, it was, it was great to see and Simon worried about the money. I like that when someone's, someone's worried about the money always makes it funny. No. <laughs> yeah. Now there's some great there's some great material on that first record and the second one, of course. Yeah, but thanks. The, uh, you know, really some good stuff. Yeah, those two records, Golden and Rain Lover, they've both been good for us. So I was happy with both of them. It'll be fun to get over there and record again, but when we did Golden, we were just burning cash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A touring party of 10. It's just crazy. I know. But you toured with Lamb Chop, right? So that would have been the same kind of thing. Even more people in the band. Oh, that was so that was so funny, like, because when Lamb Chop was actually able to make the money, they couldn't because they had two fucking buses in Europe. And we'd be doing these shows with the Flaming Lips, and they had three guys and a uh, CD. <laughs> they played to the CD. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, right. Yeah, so that was a pretty uh, funny uh, meeting of the two the two worlds. Like, one just fucking drunk blowing money, and the other one's like, uh, you gotta use a CD and shit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so they just what? They just had a CD as their backing, or how did that work? Was that it? Yeah, they they, they had the CD with the drums and all the orchestration and shit, and they had the bass player, the singer, and the guitar player. Right. So Wayne Coyne, Steve Drozd, the bass player, and a backing track. Christ. I suppose that's one way to save money and play a tricky album. I remember we went on that uh, uh, trip to Brown's Diner as well. That's a good diner, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chris got up there and sang a Van Zandt song. Yeah, he did, <laughs> yeah, he did yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think he did Tecumseh Valley. It's a great little bar. CD and Liam Fitz went there another night after we were there. Yeah, they had a good time. Well, yeah, I'm glad you saw it for a change because it's all gone now. Nashville's gone. Yeah, it's like they built a new city on top of it. It's so fucking different. I went back there about a year ago to record, and I was just like, good God, you just, like, tear down your fucking history. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a different place. So you don't miss it? Um, you know, I miss my friends, but I don't miss the city because it yeah, got yeah. real irritating, you know, with when yeah. uh, the, the millennials, millennials showed up with the money that changed it all, and they were just... I don't know, it's just irritating. <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. As soon as you see the man bun show up, you know your fucking town's going down. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I did have some great experiences there. You know, I didn't want to die there. Yeah. And what's happened now? Has that just become developed or something that where the original beach house was? Oh, God, it's horrifying. Oh, you know? really? You know what I did when I when I uh, 
when I took the money, we finally got the money we wanted for a developer to yeah. leave. I had my uh, U-Haul packed up. I had my car behind it. Then I drove around the block with Steve Miller's Take the Money and Run blasting. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, I'm so bad. But, you know, fuck it. It's like I was the last person on that block. It, was, it all changed to, to condos around me. And then what was happening in Nashville with people with home recordings yeah. is that all of a sudden you got someone that just spent $800,000 on this fucking tiny... Uh, townhouse and they didn't like all the cars coming in and shit and so they would start fucking with you and so I was like fuck man it's like I've been here you know they were starting to tell me about what I can do with my property and all this shit and I was like what? who the fuck are you you know yeah, yeah. yeah. And people, people that moved in and I just I just saw the writing on the wall man and it wasn't real money you know I got so much money for that fucking place um, I was just like this can't last forever yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is time to do it. Yeah, yeah. So that the beach house is uh, the house next to me sold at the same time, and now it's like eleven townhouses that each sold for like a million dollars. Wow. I guess yeah, you're right. The city has changed, huh? Yeah. So it's really weird when I go back to Nashville because my first instinct is to like drive to my house, <laughs> and it's like, well. It's not there, and I don't live there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you go back there a bit to you to track. Yeah, I've been to, I've been back a couple times uh, to do different projects. I did a Swamp Dog record there. That was really cool. Working with uh, Justin from Bon Iver, he's a really nice guy. So how did you end up recording George Jones? How did that happen? Well, because I worked in the system and I, you know, I knew him back from the day. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I did a couple more records in the system. And then when I did Charlie Boobin's record, oh, yeah. he did George personally. And that's how George ended up my house. I forgot you recorded Charlie Lubin. Wow. Yeah. I mean, George is so funny, man. He, uh, he was so aloof, you know, he's just like... Uh, asked me about like when's a good time to barbecue you know when the weather's nice and I'm like dude go outside and fucking see for yourself uh, <laughs> you know the guy had been on tour for 50 fucking years people giving him cokes and beer or whatever he really didn't know how to live outside <laughs> of that world it's fucking weird he, he, was, he was like a creature that escaped from the carnival and it's like you know, it was very strange <laughs> But the funniest thing about that day, yeah. that day he showed up to be in my house, you know, I told everybody, it's like, fucking George is coming. And so David Berman wanted to see him. Yeah, yeah right. But he got there late as George back in his Cadillac up, and David knocked on his window and said, I always wanted to meet you, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he rolled the window up on him and fucking got out of there like he was a street bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> That was the meeting, huh? <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Berman and George Jones.
so what are you, what are you doing with the 20 year uh, this, the 20th this, this whole thing it's just like are you putting out a, a, a compilation CD to go along with it and shit yeah that's not a bad idea so add that to the list um, this year yeah we were going to play some big shows this year but you know the COVID things kind of ended that but uh, yeah I like a compilation idea we should do that I mean I've been away from rehearsals because the states have been locked down so uh, that's why I did the podcast because I was you know, out of touch with the band I guess just one to use the time and two to um, put a marker on the 20 years you know I don't like to get too nostalgic about the past. I just, just it's more just a document. I'm more interested in the future, and we've got plenty of records to make yet. Yeah, well, you know, you can't. Uh, it's kind of like at this stage, why give up? Why stop? <laughs> it's kind of yeah, stupid, yeah, you know. Exactly. Our biggest plan is to make the next record. It's not to conquer anything or do anything. It's just try and get better yeah. and be better. And it's not like we're 20 year olds telling each other that and hoping we believe it. That's just what it is. It's nothing beyond that. Really? Yeah, but, but yeah, by now the uh, the fantasy has been removed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah the, the fantasy for us was removed uh, pretty fucking early in the piece. <laughs> now it's just eight guys in a rehearsal room going, okay, what's next? Uh, it's a working man's band, you know, like Lamb Chop used to be. Yeah, exactly. The band's there for the band. That's it. <laughs> it's funny too because like the guy that's got the most respectable job. You kind of give them more of a break for not being there. But then the dude that's got the shit job, you're like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> uh, at least that's how Lamb Chop was. Well, you know... Well, the, you know, the one I really liked was the one about your father on the last record, about betting on the horses. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Two and a half percent of a drink. Yeah, that's about my dad and me being shares in a racehorse. Half of five percent, that's it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that fucking song. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that was the one where it's like you, uh, you guys took it to another level as far as getting away from Roots Rock. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, on that whole record, we took a big swerve away from the Roots thing on Rain Lover. It, it, but the, uh, you know, my favorite song of all time, of course, is uh, Leather Jacket. Yeah, Brett Canham's Leather Jacket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just the whole story behind it and everything. It's fucking great. Yeah, yeah he was... Uh, it's a, a piece of pop brilliance, too, on top of it oh, all. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, Canham, he was something else, I tell you what. Every time I play it, I think of him in the corner of a bar. Just a silhouette, <laughs> looking like a spider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so he got to hear it, right? Yeah, he got to hear it at the Triffid, but he passed away shortly after. Because he passed, yeah, he passed. So yeah, yeah. That must have been cool. <laughs> oh, that's good. We grew up in a town called Rockhampton in the 80s, and uh, looking like he did, he was taking a risk. So he was, uh, he was always getting beat up, right? Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah he'd uh, attract his fair share of unwanted attention, I guess you'd say. He looked like Johnny Thunders. It was something to see. Yeah. In a world of everyone doing exactly the same thing, he was just... It was a big no from Canham. <laughs> and no matter what happened, the next day he just put the eyeliner back on and head on back out. 
Completely fearless. <laughs> Some people just have that shit in them, you know. I know. I mean, that's a that's like Dave Cloud and the. Uh, some other of my friends that passed, man, they don't live long, but they are the real shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like people like Jack White, you know, they try to show this image of danger. Yeah. But that ain't it, man. Real yeah. rock and roll will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. the people that fucking like really are in the, to the lifestyle, it, it wipes you out. Man. Yeah. There ain't yeah. no fucking way of. Uh, so it makes all that other shit that's glamorizes it look like pussy shit. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's play it. I talked about this song in the last episode. I can remember when I brought it into rehearsal for the first time and a couple of the boys pulled me aside and said, are you saying Brett Canham in that song? Because <laughs> they could remember him from school. It was a bit of a surprise. So here it is. In memory of him, as always, Brett Canham's leather jacket.
I'm sorry we didn't know. I didn't know you when I did tour Australia, man. That would have been awesome to hook everything in. I went to that show. You played the zoo, didn't you? In Brisbane? Or is that the second tour? The second tour is when I was on. The first tour, they went, they kind of scoped it out and shit. And I was like, well, couldn't you just done this at Outback Steakhouse? <laughs> <laughs> did you play Brisbane? I, we, I played Brisbane. I played yeah. it with David Kilgore. He was our opening act. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's right. That's David Kilgore. Cool I, I saw that show at the zoo. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, man. Yeah. I was okay. there. We're, all of us what were was that? What was that club like? Was uh, Refresh my mind. The zoo. It's like it's on the... It's in Fortitude Valley. It's like a sort of wide open timber kind of room. It's been a room there for a long time in Brisbane. It's still open. Yeah, the zoo's on like a second story. Up, you walk up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a big, it's a big room, room. Yeah. big room, big flat kind of barn-looking thing. Fairly low roof. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, actually, we had a day off in Brisbane. I had a whole day off before we did the show. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now I remember. Yeah, we were there, Benny and myself. So you, everybody was there. There was a few of us, three or four of us. Yeah. Yeah, three or four. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were fans. We were mapping the lamb chop world through magazines, keeping track and mojo and uncut. Yeah. That was yeah. kind of the best way back then to keep an eye on good stuff. True. For the internet, really. Yeah. You know, it's funny because that tour was also the tour for the double record. Yeah. Uh, the one that has the beats on the front of it, uh, all come on or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And Kurt was like, Kurt was like, Eric, you need to do this phone interview. And the guy was asking me about, why'd you do double record? And I was like, well, because Kurt wanted the money for the uh, rights. It's really not really a good double record. It would have made a good single record. But <laughs> he got paid more for doing it. Wrong guy for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> It's been good talking to you, Mark. We'll have to do some more work together. All right, John. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some pictures of the studio. Hey, uh, do. Yeah. We just finally put the drywall in, but uh, it'll be done by the fall. You know, it's designed to sleep three or four, but if possible, we could get eight in there if needed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cool. That would save you a lot of money on hotels. Thanks, mate. We'll talk to you soon. Let everybody know I said hi. You know, I miss you all. Good talking to you. Yeah, you too. Okay, so that was my chat with Mark Nevis. I really enjoyed it. He's always great to talk to. It's always good to get his angle on Nashville and all things music in general. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He's made so many great records. And really, you'd just be hard-pressed to find anyone who knows more about recording to 2-inch tape or digital recording. I mean, by his own admission, he's quite aloof, but at the same time, extremely switched on. And when it comes to Nashville and country music, he really is a key link between all of the left-of-center subversive stuff, like Bonnie Prince Billy and Lamb Chop and the Silver Jews, to some of the great old-school Nashville artists, like Charlie Leuven, Bobby Bear, and George Jones. He's across all of that. He's just as familiar with one world as the other. It's amazing. And we've been fortunate enough to make a couple of records with him, like Golden, where we did it all up in Nashville. 
and more recently, Rain Lover, where we recorded in Brisbane and sent files to Mark for him to mix and overdub in the States. And it was a good process to go through, getting back all the different mixes and guitar parts, sorting out what we needed and what we didn't. He's been a great ally, and I hope we work with him again. Also, just for context, the Browns Diner that we mentioned in the conversation is a bar, a dive bar that Mark took us to in a break in recording, because he wanted to show us the real Nashville. Andy was worried it was disappearing and we wouldn't see it. And this bar is like an extension built off of two old rail cars. It was a pretty crazy looking little place. I've seen a few shitty bars in my time, but this was a one percenter. But the food was pretty good and the people who ran it seemed pretty cool. Seemed nice. And in the corner of the bar, they had like a little open mic center. Pretty basic, just a PA and a stool. And the deal was if you were feeling brave, you could jump up and uh, entertain the locals. And the story Mark told us was that back in the day, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant would show up there and just drink and play off the cuff for hours. Imagine seeing that. I mean, the room would have only held 30 people. Incredible. And one night, Chris Dale and Liam Fitz went back there and had a few drinks, had a bit of a night out. And Chris Dale got up and played Tecumseh Valley for the locals in memory of the late great Towns Van Zant. And looping back to that conversation I had last week with Simon Homer about secret messages in runoff grooves. On the 12 inch vinyl version of the Golden Halfway record, just near the side A runoff groove, the message reads, Brown's Diner. You have to look pretty hard, but it's there. And yeah, that whole process of recording that week was only short, but it was good. We learned a lot. We had a good time. We were flying, burning money but flying. So I hope you enjoyed the chat with Mark Nevers. Uh, this is going to be my last episode for a while as I'm going back to Brisbane to rehearse with the band for a few weeks. I'm looking forward to it. I'll leave in two days. But I'll be back to do a few more episodes on the other side. I still have a few people to talk to and one more album, Rain Lover, to go through. So until then, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of A Band Called Halfway. Take care. Cheers.